Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle, and welcome in particular to any listeners who've joined us recently. Over the last few weeks, we've seen a really big spike in our numbers, which is awesome. So for anyone who's joining the show, welcome. Thanks for tuning in. Every week we have conversations like this where my goal is to bring you something really engaged and in-depth with a really, really interesting guest, and often to have conversations that are challenging and counterintuitive, and to push around your intuitions on what's moral or what's just. So, if that sounds interesting, there's lots of ways to like and subscribe. Please do check out the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And for returning listeners, welcome back as well. As always, if you're enjoying the show, you can support it through Patreon, at whatever level is right for you. And it's also really valuable to us forever who just shares an episode on their own social media, helps get the word out there. So my guest today is Professor Tamla Summers, who many of you will know from the Very Bad Wizards podcast, which if you haven't checked it out, is a really awesome, funny, but also very engaged and um, very in-depth series of conversations about politics, ethics, psychology, stuff like that. And this will be the first of a two-part series. So this is the first half of my conversation with Tamla. The second half will be out next week. And this is a format um, I'm increasingly getting into for bringing the show to you. It allows us to have longer conversations, but in a way that you can um, process them as a viewer in digestible chunks. I took to social media to ask for feedback, and this seemed to be the preferred option for how we do the show going forward. One final note is in this conversation, I reference a number of other conversations I've had on the podcast. We're up to 25 episodes now, so it's it's almost getting to be like a body of work now, which is kind of crazy. And if you look at the webpage for this episode, I'll provide a short introduction to and a link to the episodes that I've referenced in this conversation. So, getting straight to today's guest... Tamla Summers is a professor at the University of Houston. His research and writing revolves around issues of honour, free will, moral responsibility, punishment, and revenge. He's the author of several books, including Relative Justice and A Very Bad Wizard, Morality Behind the Curtain. And he's just published Why Honour Matters, which becomes the basis for the first part of our conversation today. Also, as mentioned, he's the co-host of the Very Bad Wizards podcast, along with psychologist David Pizarro. In the first part of this conversation, we discuss Tamler's podcast and his overall approach to controversy, and then we really zero in on just one aspect of his latest book, that of collective responsibility and collective punishment. So, without further preamble, it's my pleasure to bring you Professor Tamla Summers.
Um, all right, let's just go. So I am joined here today by Tamla Summers. Tamla, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Great. So I think a lot of people will have already heard you from your podcast, but for those who haven't, um, how do you answer the always awkward question, what do you do? Well, just by the, the most straightforward way possible, I teach philosophy at the University of Houston, and I, you know, I have a podcast. <laughs> uh, that is pretty much what I do. I'm, I'm the author of a few books. I, um, I have, I have tenure, so I have a certain degree of freedom right now, which has allowed me to do some more offbeat projects. And although I guess I was sort of, I was doing some of those before tenure too so um but now i can do it more easy of mind yeah so yeah tenure might be a good uh starting point uh for launching something like very bad wizards and... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we were happy to yeah we had both just gotten tenure dave and i i think uh yeah right around the first episode first or second episode and once we got it we both realized oh we can say whatever dirty jokes inappropriate jokes we want and it's not that they can't fire us but it would be a byzantine legal hassle to to fire us have so you, have you ever got any blowback um i i remember the last very bad wizards episode i listened to had some you know good old-fashioned bestiality jokes in it um <laughs> have you ever got any blowback from it in your sort of professional department life you know, surprisingly, no, none, just mm. none at all. At first, I think it was because people just didn't know about it. But um, we've gotten surprisingly little blowback, period. And, you know, we've had some episodes where we're really pushing the boundaries right. of what's considered acceptable. And I don't know, there's something about a podcast where they get to know the hosts and i think if if people believe that the hearts are in the right you know, that our hearts are in the right place then we can get away with a, a lot that other people couldn't necessarily get away with in the same way that you know south park i think gets away with a lot a lot of stuff that others wouldn't and that's because people suspect that Trey Parker and Matt Stone are at heart good people with good intentions. And I, I, I think that's, you know, e even in today's charged environment or what people say is a charged environment, um, you, you have a, a lot of flexibility and freedom uh, as long as you're not a true, like a dick. You know, yeah. as long as you're not an asshole, as long as you're not really racist or, you know, really sexist. Also, like, I get the feeling, even with South Park, I think there's sometimes like a sort of Marilyn Manson effect where they're just trying to get a rise out of people. I never get that feeling. I mean, maybe you are with very bad words. It's, I get the feeling you're saying it because you think it's funny. <laughs> like, you're, you're, not, you're yeah. not going to provoke a reaction. You're going because yeah. you just think it's, you know, it's fun stuff to play around with. Yeah. I actually kind of read Fi South Park that way too, mm. but 
Uh, I mean, yes, sometimes, but I, I, I think so for something like Family Guy seems to me to be a better description of what you were t talking about of trying to get a rise out of people. Mm -hmm. South Park, ne uh, uh, yeah, undeniably has some episodes where they're doing that. Um, like when there's a bomb in Hillary Clinton's vagina or right. something like that. But, uh, but no, I mean, I, I think they're at heart just trying to make themselves laugh and trying to make people laugh. And that's what we do on the podcast too. And, um, yeah. And I think those kinds of things come across and when people react against comics or, or professors, there's there's usually something else behind it than mm. some remark they made or some insensitive joke or something. There's there's more to it as in my experience in academia for the last fifteen years. Yeah, it wasn't the topic we we met to discuss, but you and Dave are both on record as you think like the reaction against political correctness on on campuses is a little bit overblown. It's not that people don't ever act like idiots. It's just not our central concern about what's happening right yeah it's much more i think the internet makes gives a um distorted i mean a radically distorted picture of what's going on on college campuses and um because there are these incidents where students uh are spoiled and coddled and everything that you know snowflakes and they're complaining about microaggressions there are these cases but it happens even at the sort of liberal arts rich private institutions where these things tend to happen even at those institutions it happens much more seldom than people think and you know people forget with charles murray and there was that you know, a truly bad incident at Middlebury, but Charles Murray's been giving talks at campuses for the last 10, 15 years. Even, you know, he had some reaction after the bell curve and then that died down. And, and you just never hear about the times where everything goes smoothly. We hosted him at U of H and they were a couple little protests, but nothing uh, disruptive, uh, everything within the bounds of sort of fair and what, what you should expect. And everything went off without a hitch. And that's because you only see the Middlebury's or the Evergreen States. You think, oh, this is what's going on on these campuses. Everyone's afraid. No, there's a chilling effect. I, I can say honestly that I don't, and never have feel, felt chilled. Um, not at my university, not when I'm giving talks at other universities. It's just not that phenomenon, I think, is something that people project onto college campuses, including some professors. You know, they say, oh, I'm afraid to say something. Well, sometimes it's just because they're being pussies. Like they, <laughs> yes. they, you know, they should sit, they, if they truly believe something and they're not just trying to get a rise out of somebody, then they should say it and there, see what happens. Also, there's also a level of hypocrisy in that the people accuse the, the, the college left or the far left or the social justice warriors or whatever you want to call them of being oversensitive and overreactive, which I don't, I don't doubt some of them are. But then the, the reaction to that, that, perceived overreaction is in itself such an overreaction that 
it's, it, it's and you're, you know you're calling people snowflakes, whereas the minute they maybe hold a protest against a speaker they think is a racist or something, you lose your mind. Right. Um, like, like you're and then you say, I can't so... say anything now because people will call. I'm afraid that people will call me a racist, and that's just now you're being the snowflake. Exactly, exactly. So talking of ideas that, um, how should we say, could be potentially problematic, should we, um, should we jump in and say some stuff to, that, that may offend people on both sides of that divide? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was it's an awkward a segue as I've ever done. This book that I just did, uh, so it got, a, it got a review in the Atlantic where they're, you know, very much from the left complaining about how much I underestimate um, how honor has contributed to, you know, the Trump and the alt-right and... And then I, there was a review in the Washington Times that complained that I was too squishy. I was too much of a squishy liberal. So I've really managed to do something that pleases nobody. So I did have this question for you. Um, to start with, honor is quite a difficult concept to nail down to begin with, like in almost just like a Wittgensteinian sense. You don't, it's not so much like here is what honor is in a definition. There's more just a set of like recurring themes you tend to find in honor cultures right but then so my, my question was how do you see honor as a concept relating to the political spectrum because at a first glance it feels conservative or right-wing but then a lot of the places you go with it in terms of uh, criminal justice reform um, immigration stuff like that would seem at least stereotypically left-wing. So I realize I'm asking you to map one very big, vague thing onto another very big, vague thing, but to the extent that you can, how would you see honor as relating to the political left or the political right? Yeah, it's really hard, and I don't think it fits comfortably in either category. I mean, there are parts of there are elements of honor cultures that I think map on surprisingly well to f feminist philosophy, you know, ethics of care, um, a kind of philosophy that doesn't rely on universal abstract ideal principles, but on relationships and the connection you feel with people in your family and people in your group. Um, that's a that's a theme in in feminist philosophy, which is definitely associated with um, the the left wing. But then there's also this distrust of centralized authority, um, a kind of emphasis on the local, uh, that and a emphasis on standing up for yourself and not turning to third parties to handle your own conflicts, you handle them yourselves. I think that, that, that people associate more with the right. Honestly, I, I think in a country like the United States, honor isn't part of politics, for sure. I mean, if there's a group of people that I can say don't act honorably, it would be politicians. Um, you know, Ted Cruz, 
endorsed the man who called his wife ugly and said his father assassinated JFK. That video uh, of Ted Cruz making calls for Trump was like... <laughs> it, it, it was like a self-inflicted hostage video. It was just sort of beautiful and horrifying to watch at the same time. I mean, he's, he, has a, he has an election coming up right now, and I think if I was the candidate, Beto... O'Rourke, who's running against him, I would just say, Ted Cruz endorsed the man who called his wife ugly and <laughs> accused his dad of, of uh, murdering JFK. Yeah. I'm Beto O'Rourke and I approve this message. Like, that I would... can see that being compelling to a Trump voter. <laughs> That's like, just what what, I would... like who, who does that? Who does that? Exactly. So now, so that's just something about politicians. I don't understand it. I don't understand why they don't act. I think voters would respect um, somebody standing by principles even. But maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm not a political. I'm not a pollster. I, I, but I also think that the United States is so big and so diverse that it's hard to imagine the kind of honor values and honor communities that I'm sort of trying to defend or or explore. It's hard to imagine how it could really work at such in at such a scale, right? So most of my examples in the book are on much smaller scales. There's sports teams you know, military units, smaller subcultures within the, um, within the larger society. Uh, I think that's where honor, honor frameworks and honor values are more effective than at the larger level. Um, you know, except when something like 9-11 happens or something, and that inspires people to feel connected not just to their family members or the people in their group or their party or whatever, but to the entire country. But those things are so rare um, that I think normally people are identifying with something much smaller than an entire nation. So one aspect of honor that... I think is, is going to be both intuitive and unintuitive is the focus on the group and the group identity and your investment in that in a way that seems to run afoul of a lot of our um, professed liberal convictions. In a way, though, I mean, one intuitive way in would be to draw a very clear analogy between um, codes of honor and a lot of the behavior of um, the social justice types that we just started with is the ability to respond to an insult to the group. Like when the, the, the quintessential like like case of honor would be someone says, fuck your mother and you punch them on the nose. Right. Yeah. But then or Zidane's headbutt, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, that was about his sister, right? Like, not, no, not would never have insulted yes. his mother. <laughs> no, if, uh, <laughs> as uh, the Italian wants to make very clear, yeah. it wasn't about his mother, it was about his sister. Um, but then it seems like there's, there's, there's not a clear, bright divide between that and, like, the philosophy of microaggressions, which is you've, you've cast a slur or an aspersion on my national identity or my racial identity, and I'm... I feel empowered to 
call you down on that and like respond on behalf of a group rather you know does, does that make sense as an analogy you you must have got that yes. question um uh, you know actually not really but um it's a good question i think so sometimes when people complain about microaggressions it's a microaggression against them one sort of frustrating thing and i here i can identify with people who are up in arms about the SJWs are, is when sort of a white person feels offended on behalf of a black person or offended on behalf of a woman or, um, and especially in cases where the black person might not be offended. And, um, the, but there's a difference. And there was a paper that came out, and I had a lot of problems with this paper, but it was called The Culture of Victimhood. Um, I forget who the authors were. But um, the idea was that these groups, um, the groups that you're referring to, they share one component with honor cultures, which is their um, – they have a heightened sensitivity to insult. Um, so that's the component that they share with honor cultures. They're easily offended, they feel easily insulted, and they feel that some response is is owed. But the difference is they turn to the administration or some impartial authority as a form of punishment, a Title IX court or something like that, whereas uh, in an honor culture, you wouldn't do that. You would handle it yourself. And so to the and, and, and I think here is where I think and I don't know to what extent that's a fair characterization. Again, I don't I don't I don't I don't really uh, uh, run into these people who are supposedly constantly um, insulted I mean, and offended I... and. I, I work for a bunch of hyper-liberal causes, so I, I meet the real-life version of the cutout. Actually, I would say, to the contrary, that there actually is a sense of taking personal responsibility for it. Not necessarily exclusively, but I think there is a case in social justice culture of, of feeling empowered by personally saying, don't you realise what you just said is racist? And that, 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 that there's actually a sense of wanting to do it yourself. I think that is there, actually, sometimes. Well, so to the extent that it is, um, I respect that. You know, I if a student comes up to me after class and um, and says that I've, you know, that I, I've insulted or offended her race or her, her group or... Um, and wants to talk to me about it, and I can ask questions as to why I, what I did, and why exactly it, you know, that's that's how discourse should work. Uh, I think, again, in some of the cases, it's more that they call someone out on Twitter, or they, um, or they go to the administration and ask that the person be suspended. So there, you know, that is that's not honor culture way of handling it but to confront the person seems absolutely that's i mean i think we need a lot more of that because then you have people talking to each other and not people just trying to shame each other or 
Um, yeah, so, I, I literally just got off the phone with Theresa Bejan, who's an Oxford professor of political theory, um, mm -hmm. and she, this was her conclusion, is that, that it's actually very valuable to the extent that you're, you're creating a conversation as opposed to shutting one down. Right. Um, and I made the same point with Kalyan Mendoza, who's um, a former field director of Amnesty International, where we did a whole podcast arguing that, that most of the social justice concepts are completely valid. It's a question of, of when someone does say something racist, do you say, well, hey, let me try and explain this to you, or even to just ask questions, like, why do you feel that way? Yeah. As opposed to just going, well, fuck you, you're a racist, end of, of conversation. That, that seems correct to me. Yeah. And then correspondingly on the other side, you shouldn't shut down if somebody complains that, you know, you said something racist and you don't think you did. You should at least you have a responsibility, you know, within boundaries to engage with that person, too, and ask why they feel that way um, and what it is that you did. You don't even have to end up agreeing. But I think there's also a lot of people who will who will shut down on, on, on that end. The po our podcast has been very good for this. We, every once in a while, not in, not from acad other academics, but from just listeners will say that will send us an email that, um, not complain is the wrong word, but just wants to let us know that what we said, um, was offensive to them or, they felt they were uncomfortable with it, and we engage with that person, and it's almost always a positive engagement. Yeah. Um, One, yeah, I completely agree, and I, I think that people are too quick to dismiss all of social justice work as the sort of closing down conversation, whereas yeah. actually there's a lot of really good people doing good work in a sort of I want to talk to you about this, I want to draw your attention to it. One, though, other dividing line you could draw in terms of the sort of responding to insults and so on is the idea of feeling responsibility for the group. Like in social justice, you may well want to respond to um, a, a negative assertion about all black people or something, but you wouldn't want to be held responsible for the bad behavior of people within that group. Whereas a big part of honor culture that I read you as saying is that if, if you are going out for a sports team, say, you are representing that team and you right. will, you, a sen that there is a sense of collective responsibility that you absolutely wouldn't want for, say, a racial grouping, right? Yeah. I think, again, a, a racial group is too large and and too uh, diffuse to have the kind of um, connection and relationship where you feel responsible for what the other, uh, what, what people just of your race have done. I mean, it's, it definitely happens. One of the, in the book, my earlier book, Relative Justice, I led off that book with just a description of this NPR program I heard right after the the killings at Virginia Tech, where um, I get third, it was a mass shooting done by a Korean student. Um, he shot and killed 32 people. And this reporter on NPR was interviewing Koreans, 
people in the Korean Americans in LA and asking them how they felt about what happened. And they were deeply, they, they didn't, they were very uncomfortable talking to her. And when they did talk, they said they felt so ashamed and they felt so, um, they felt like they had to apologize for what this person did. And then even Korean American leaders uh, called for a public apology on behalf of the Korean American community and even proposed that they atone by fasting uh, one day for every uh, victim that was killed. And it, you know, it was funny, the NPR reporter found that so baffling. He was like, but wait a minute, you didn't know this person. You, you're 3,000 miles away. What, why but do you feel responsible you... for this at all? Could you not think of an example for yourself? I, I'm going to push back on this a little. Um, I think, so clearly, like, the idea of, like, representing the group well is a very powerful one and is a very powerful regulator of behaviour. So that would certainly work for, like, don't let the side down in a sports team. But I'm also just thinking, um, I'm a Brit living in America. Both the British and the Americans have reputations as being lousy tourists that we go over to other countries, we don't understand their culture, the British get drunk and get in fistfights, right? Yeah. I'm very conscious when I'm abroad to not be the, the, the either the American dork tourist who doesn't understand the history or the British tourist making a mess of it. And I, that's probably a regulator of my behavior in some way, right? Yeah. Yeah, and in a positive way, right? You don't want to be that that kind. You don't want to conform to to that uh, to that to that stereotype. But it's a you know often an accurate stereotype, and you don't. And and I think what would go along with that, and I don't know if you feel like this, is if you feel ashamed when you see a British person acting in the way that you don't want to act. Um, I might do you feel more compelled to try and regulate not just my behavior, but theirs. Right. And that's one of the positive things with collective responsibility is there it builds this sense of self-policing within the group. So if you feel responsible not just for what you do, but what people in your group do and you feel and and maybe other groups might think that you are an appropriate target of punishment or or response, then you're gonna you're gonna make you're gonna want to make sure that the people behave in appropriate ways who are in your group, and that can be that can be a healthy positive um, aspect if the things that you are trying to regulate are themselves morally positive. So let me give you another example then where you've got the exact same mechanic and it's also leading to good outcomes, but it just feels much more iffy. So I was, um, I, was, I, don't know, I was getting some pizza with a friend who happens to be an uh, older black woman, and you'll see that'll become pertinent in a sec, and this guy comes up to us and is just acting like a complete jackass. He's also, he's a black guy. He was just embarrassing us and himself, and, like, we had to just leave eventually, right? And she said to me, yeah, I just, uh, I'll tell you, Toby, I hate it when I see black people behaving that way, because I know there's white people judging all of us. And 
Well, I mean, in a sense, that's leading her, like, she's regulating her behaviour, or it's at least a force that would regulate her not to be a jackass, so that's positive. But it just feels much more unfair and unreasonable in the case of race, as even as opposed to, like, national identity. And I think it, it especially feels unfair because of the history of race in this particular country and how black people feel like they're never going to be given the benefit of the doubt. And so the, the reason that she feels that way, I, I think this drove a lot of, you know, what people call respectability politics too, uh, is this, um, this conviction that unless we comport ourselves perfectly, then we will be judged harshly in a way that other white people that 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 white people wouldn't be. Um, and there that's you that's probably accurate. and that's that's I think that's what makes it unfair, not necessarily the collective responsibility part of it, but more the reasons why sh that like, your friend feels ashamed. Um, when she sees another black person doing this because she knows that's just going to lead what that's just going to confirm what many white people unfairly suspect already. Right. There's there's a there's an inequity in that it's not the case for white people that we really feel that sense of responsibility. So it feels unfair that someone else should for. Yeah. You know, there's. The same. I. I think uh, there was there was somebody on a philosophy blog who said it's unfair that if you look at uh, minority professors and you look at white professors, white professors dress like college students. You right. Know? They, That's, uh, whereas, I, that is so bloody true. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the minority professors are much more, and, and women too, to some extent, are much more likely to dress in a more professional way. And that's a little unfair. And they were even calling for the white professors to also dress like that so that um, this inequity was not allowed to continue. And I don't know if, I, I, I can't, I don't, as one of those like dress like a college student uh, professors, <laughs> I, I don't know if I go that far to endorse it, but I think they're pointing to something that is that reflects the kind of inequity that that you're talking about. That the students won't res will be m less likely to respect a minority or maybe a female in some fields, a female professor, if they're not dressed in a professional way, whereas a white person can get away with it. Yeah, but though, but though that the the. the... There are inequities that would apply to many, maybe even all, spheres of um, collective responsibility, right? Because, like, the expectations you have as an American would be different than as a Mexican, right? Like, the stereotypes you're responding to would be different. And even with the case of, like, sports teams, like they have a reputation and they're going to be concerned to either live up to or to defy that expectation in certain ways. So it's never going to be the case that collective responsibility is evenly applied across comparable groups. That's right. Yeah. And even, and, and these inequities is not always a reason to, um, 
bemoan this sense of collective responsibility. I think I think collective responsibility, collective punishment, um, can be a positive uh, force in some contexts and a negative one in some contexts. And really, there's no. I don't think there's underlying general principles that can let us know what those contexts are. It's much messier and more particular particularistic than you that. Think we've just got to sort of do what we're doing now and just sort of feel them out and like yeah. just see what feels right. Right. I mean, there is paradigmatic cases, I think, you know, in the NHL or the Navy SEALs, that sense of collective responsibility seems like a force for good. And then in other cases, you know, I don't know if this is a paradigmatic bad case, but maybe the Crips and the Bloods or something like that, which is that sense of collective responsibility and collective punishment has led to a lot of um, bloodshed, a lot of murders. Uh, that, that, and, uh, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, but I mean, it, it's not even, even that is not maybe necessarily a clear-cut case because there's a lot of positive that comes from, from gangs. Um, but... You know, on uh, all things considered, it is probably bad that if uh, a, a blood feels like they have to avenge, uh, an, you know, another blood's death by going after just any crip, that's probably not, that's probably a recipe for one, a cycle of violence that can spin out of control. Um, so... Um, we, we, let's maybe revisit what you see as the positives of gangs, but be, I, I've got like just a pure philosopher's question, which it seems like the standard you're using to assess whether or not this is an appropriate case of collective responsibility is a morally consequentialist one. In other words, you, 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 could, you could have a coherent worldview which is um, utilitarian or, you know, you're just looking at what, what has the the, the, the most positive consequences, you're not incorporating, say, um, retribution as a, a valid means for punishment, you're just looking at prevention and deterrence, and then it just becomes a purely empirical question of is bad behaviour better deterred by individual or collective punishment in any given instance. That's, so, that's a coherent I, worldview, but I think a lot of people would find it suspect. Yeah, and I, I'm one of those people. I, I, I don't see myself as defending a consequentialist or utilitarian um, perspective on this issue. Um, I... I think consequentialist considerations matter, for sure. I think there are consequential. That's something that needs to be weighed when giving a an all things considered evaluation of a sense of collect. You know, something as complex as a sense of collective responsibility. But you know, I, I I'm more likely to see this in terms of, you know, from a perspective of virtue ethics. Um, you know, to take a, a much smaller example, I think me feeling pride in my daughter's accomplishments, me feeling um, shame and a sense of I need to make amends if she does something bad, that's, uh, that's a 
virtuous character trait to have. That's a part of the recipe for a good life is to feel this sense of collective or a sense of a connection with family members and um, and whether or not it is optimal from the utilitarian standpoint, I still think it is a good thing um, and it is part of living a good and virtuous life. So that's how um, I'm more likely to look at it more uh, in terms of is this what a good person would feel or is this how a good person would behave? Uh, now that said, part of what goes into making that assessment will be consequentialist considerations. And sometimes consequentialist considerations can outweigh what it would. So maybe it is virtuous in some sense to feel like you want to retaliate on behalf of uh, a murdered member of your gang or, you know, and, and, or some, or your friend or whatever, maybe that's virtuous in, in some way, but still all things considered is something that we want to discourage because of for consequentialist reasons. But I definitely separate those two things. And I don't think consequentialist considerations are the only considerations or that they always should win in a all things considered evaluation. Yeah, I mean, there's another piece you could bring in, which is sort of um, a, a, like a Kantian prohibition on means and ends. So, um, I mean, the, the, the way you're talking, though, I, I think Sam Harris made this point to you when you did the Waking Up podcast, is you could process both of those as just two different sets of consequences, right? You could say there's the consequence of does me having these particular carrots and sticks mentally is that overall leading to, to, to more utility in the world? Then there's also the case of on the inside, is my um, is my life more enriched by me having these feelings about a, a daughter or a family member? Is my life personally more valuable? But you could map both of those to like a big conception of welfare or flourishing or something like that. But then I think a lot of people would want to make the move to say, even if you have a big conception of welfare, the idea of collective punishment runs afoul of the idea that you treat people as ends in themselves. And there's something just a bit off um, deontologically, even if it maximizes value in the broad sense about holding someone accountable for the actions of another. I mean, if you take a really extreme case, if you did, as I think Trump recommended this, if you were to execute the families of terrorists, they could well say to you, but on what right do you punish me for something I had no no control over? So there's a sort of like abstract sense of value, which I'm not sure I personally find convincing, but I think a lot of people would want to make that move at this point, right? Yeah, well, certainly. And, you know, the whole retributivist theory of punishment is focused on this idea of individual responsibility and, and even more narrow, narrowly... Uh, responsibility for what the individual has control over. Um, I, I think again, you know, I, I think the this is this is the real thesis of my book, Relative Justice. I think that perspective, that intuition, 
is uh, is is something that is a recent development in human history. It is very culturally local. It has arisen in the West. Um, I think it has ties to Christianity, but also in the kind of Kantian Enlightenment uh, overall framework, ethical framework. And um, and we sometimes mistake that perspective, these intuitions that, that we have inherited and uh, as, you know, universal rational truths when they're just not. I don't think they can be defended rationally. And I think there are equally rational and sometimes morally um, uh, 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 there's morally advantageous other ways of viewing responsibility. And so again, I think it, I think it really depends on the context and it depends on the culture and it depends on the particular situation. And I would resist making a broad statement one way or the other. I think sometimes the, the, that this idea of holding individuals, only individuals responsible for their actions is a good thing. And sometimes it's a good thing to, to hold families responsible. Now the Trump thing, you know, I, I, I don't know why he said that or what the, I don't know why he says anything, but I, my guess is he had in mind some kind of deterrent. Uh, he had, if I had to guess, some sort of deterrent aspect. He didn't think it was justice. He thought if people knew their families were going to get killed, then they'll then they wouldn't do it. Um, but I don't know. Or, yeah, but, but that's you know, or maybe he's just trying to fire up his base. No, I mean, if you were to attempt to put a logical rationale behind it, it would be deterrence, right? Um, and I ask that. I mean, I recently had on the podcast who's like a free will skeptic, doesn't believe in responsibility in any sort of um, retributive sense. Yeah. Um, and is just sort of working from, um, what did he call it? But like, like, like if someone has an infectious disease, you'd want to quarantine them and it's not about them as a person. It's just consequentialism, which I, I actually am very sympathetic to that view on the grounds of like epistemic confidence. We can have a lot of confidence that suffering is real and that consequences matter and anything else can just feel a bit more abstract, but then taking that view if it were the case, and it surely can't be, that terrorists could be deterred by killing their families, that that if the, that was the world we're living in, then it would become justified. And then the move he made to get out of that was the sort of Kantian prohibition on means and ends. But it, it would follow, if, 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 if you don't view that move as valid, the, the means and ends distinction, or, or you think it's only sort of one side of the story, where, where's your purchase to be sceptical of, um, of collective punishment in that very extreme case? Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I don't think, I, I don't think you can strike that balance. I think I, when consequentialists try to, and I guess this isn't what Greg was doing, but when they try to fudge the numbers so that what seems just and fair just happens to also be what uh, the, will produce the best consequences. That's when 
I I find the position to be not just implausible, but dishonest almost. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. In the second part of this conversation, I'll take up the challenge that Tamla threw down at the end of this episode and defend what I see as the value of moral consequentialism or utilitarianism or something like that. And I'll offer some arguments in defense of that approach. And Tamla will talk about his overall view of virtue ethics and what he sees as the value of moral philosophy. And we'll get into a discussion about what it is we're trying to do here in general. And that's a really valuable conversation that impacted me. So I hope you'll come back to join us for that. As always, if you do enjoy this show and find it valuable, we suggest a donation of $2 per episode. So if you found the episode you just listened to had equal value to, say, a cup of coffee, then it would be amazing if you'd support it on that basis. We have a Patreon site. It's really easy to do, so please do check that out. You can also support the show by sharing, tagging friends, anything to get the word out there. And as always, a big, big thank you to everyone who does either of those two things. Genuinely, you make the show possible. Apart from that, thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll return for part two. Part two.